0: Well, I think we do have a bit of news. Where we spoke um, about maybe not having that much, but I, there was a package that landed um, last week, I think. Yes, you wrote about it in um, iOS Dev Weekly as well. And that is okay. Swift Win 32 by Salim ah, Abdul yes. Rasool. Yeah, I, I, thought, I thought I'd thought maybe pull this forward into the news
1: section uh, and not just as a package towards the no, end. i think that's a great idea to talk about that <laughs> yeah i got good feedback on that um opening um comment actually this week so yeah yeah we'll I,
0: I really like that and just to to mention salim abdoulas who is also known as Compnerd. Like, uh, that's actually what i of what i map his his uh persona to um on the swift forums and everywhere so he's the i think the maintainer of swift on windows and also the person who brought that to exist, into existence, I believe. Yeah. Um and so he submitted, or someone submitted, I'm not sure um what the order of events was, but we have it in the index now. Swift Win32 Windows, a Windows application framework in Swift. Um unsurprisingly the compatibility matrix is uh, <laughs> all uh, yes, all crosses because um we only test on macOS, uh ios and so on the apple platforms and um linux so that's not a big surprise but that sort of brings or mounts the pressure a bit what our strategy is with respect to the next platform i suppose i mean windows has always been one of the leading candidates and we've obviously talked about this before and tossed around the ideas um the idea to um to add it and when will we add it how will we add it actually because i've been thinking about this a bit and it's a bit of a departure because with macos and linux we have the option to run this pretty much ourselves i mean spe- just speaking for myself i have no real access to a windows machine where we could even where I could even experiment with building um, swift packages on it. So it'd have to be either cloud-based or I'd have to, you know, get a a Windows laptop or some kind of Windows machine. So that's sort of been an impediment to experimenting further with this. Um, And in that same vein, there's another package that I saw just last week that mentioned one of the platforms that we're not supporting yet, and that is Wasm. So there's an explicit mention. I believe it was a point free core package. Um, and there it was just mentioned as an additional platform that they support. So which is different because the Win thirty two platform is actually one that is Windows only, right? So this is a package um that is specifically for Windows. I'm sure we have other packages that that will be compatible with Windows once we start testing, but you know, that's just because they happen to also work on Windows, while this one certainly requires Windows.
1: I, I think it's a, a great idea. And we've talked about it several times but i i think i think the time is is arriving for us to uh think seriously about adding uh, windows compatibility um and you mentioned the win32 uh package i think it was actually me that added that package on uh thursday or friday last week because right. i was i was doing a bit of research for that article i wrote on ios dev weekly and uh ended up poking around in uh, Selim's uh, github list repository list, and i found I found that one. I think the Win RT one had already been added, but the Win thirty-two one hadn't. Or I may have got those the wrong way around we had one, but we didn't have the other. But it's great to see um it's great to see that kind of work happening. And I think Celine deserves all the credit in the world for for, for not only doing the work that he's done to bring Swift to Windows, but also for having the momentum and it kind of the, the the force of will to get it done because it was it was probably not the well it was certainly not the easiest task in the world I'm sure yeah uh, but it was also probably not the most obvious thing to do um, as an independent person outside of the Swift project so I think he deserves a huge amount of credit for that yeah and he's been doing this for a long long time right I mean I, yeah, I don't even remember
0: is. when he started uh, adding windows support and initially i believe it wasn't even you know in swift itself so there was a lot of absorbing upstream changes into his um branch or fork of it i believe but th- i think that a lot of that has changed in the meantime so yeah there's there's a little for for people watching what's going on if you want a spoiler for ios dev weekly check out what stuff gets added to the package index on thursdays because that's when when <laughs> dave, uh, dave, yes. uh, dave spoils his newsletter <laughs>
1: <laughs> Pretty much. It's quite a, quite a common uh, thing that I'll find something on a Thursday that I want to add to the index. <laughs>
0: yeah, so I, I was thinking a bit about our next platform and May is probably not a, a great time to, to actually add a new platform because, you know, in June there might be something new happening. So we, <laughs> we always have to be a bit careful what we take on because adding a new platform isn't just a one-off thing. It then becomes a an ongoing concern, you know, like maintenance um, in particular a platform like Windows, which we'd have to, well, that's something to discuss, but likely something that we'd have to maintain, right? We'd have to maintain Windows machines, perhaps there's an alternative way to actually do it, which I want to maybe briefly talk about. And that's one I have high hopes for because it would solve a lot of the effort that we would have to, you know, bring I put in otherwise, and that's um, Swift's cross compilation support. There's a um, evolution proposal out by Max Desyatov right now. Well, actually, I think it might have been um, approved by now, and that's about uh, cross compilation destinations. I think that's that's just the first stop step in a range of proposals to be coming to give Swift the capability, you know, cross-compilation full uh, cross compilation capabilities. And having that would save us a lot of trouble because maintaining Windows machines for the Windows testing, I mean, it's possible, but then we'd have yet a third, yet another, you know, platform in the mix that we'd need to maintain, update, and, and also set up the build environment for. Whereas if yeah. we could rely on cross compilation that would be really great because we would probably still want to choose either macOS and Linux as a single one that does everything then but we'd at least have that choice to r- run the compiles on a single platform all the runners being the same would give us a lot of um advantages you know we just we would have an easier time managing our capacity because it's all the same we could just add machines and every machine can build everything that's that's really nice um so that would be great but i, I just i don't have a sense for how far off that is and in particular how how long it'll take for that to be um something we could truly rely on i mean we do effectively do cross compilation already right because we're using Macs to compile yeah ios tv os watch os so it's it's nothing new um but that doesn't automatically mean it'll be you know perfect for linux and you know all the other platforms that are
1: you know less common as as those apple platforms the other big question i have with this is um How will it cope with things like? So, for example, that Win32 package has uh, presumably bindings into the Windows APIs. Yes. And how does it, if it can, can it even cope with something like that? I would, I would, I think that's a question we'll need to answer fairly early. Because, and again, we'd have the same questions with with, with the Mac side of things, right? Um, yes. So, yeah. uh, I think there are some questions that need uh, answering there. Um, there is actually another option on how we could approach this, which is, again, something that came from um, uh, an article I linked to in iOS Dev Weekly this week, which was, uh, it was a it was a post on continuous integration um, at Airbnb from uh, Michael backhand and Xenwen Chen. Uh, and they were talking about, I don't know whether you, you spotted the article, but they were talking about uh, an enormous uh, kind of redesign of their continuous integration environment at Airbnb. And switching it from, they had 300 uh, CI machines, which is an oh, enormous God. amount. <laughs> I can't even. I can't even imagine. They were talking about the problems of, you know, applying updates and making sure they were yeah. in a stable situation and logging onto one and rebooting it and that kind of thing. And they switched to a uh, AMI based environment in um, uh, in Amazon. So they have base images, yes, and yeah. then on demand they spin up a machine from that base image. They run some CI, and at the end of it, they 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 shut it down. Or I mean. It's a long article, so I'm summarizing terribly here. But um, but roughly, that's the that's the approach that they took, and we have the you know we're running in cloud environments, so we have the potential to do something similar um, if we if we wanted to kind of look into that side of things. It's certainly another option.
0: Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, we talked about Tart in the past, which on macOS offers um, virtualization. You know, like where you can spin up Max um which would help a lot i mean on linux we're sort of saved a bit by docker which effectively does that to a degree it's effectively doing it yeah, yeah yeah and um i've every year in june at wwc i i hope for something docker-like to uh happen for macOS, but i i think that'll be uh forever hope
1: <laughs> maybe this year when maybe this year oh, yeah right yeah
0: <laughs> not long to wait four weeks is it <laughs> three yeah three it's three weeks yeah um the other thing i was thinking about how would we actually decide what platform to pick next i mean it's unrealistic that we do multiple at the same time how would we judge just effort do we have a sense for how how much
1: demand there is for windows over wasm for instance i think effort has to come into it but i don't think it should be the the primary um metric I'd go on on really kind of gut feeling. What's what feels like the right platform? And to me, I think the gut feeling is very strong actually that 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 it should be Windows. I think Wasm is certainly one that we would like to add at some point, but it feels it feels to me like Windows should be first. Do you have a use case in mind or do you
0: do you think there's a can you think of a project that actually has Windows demand? I feel like I'm gonna refer to iOS Dev Weekly a lot in this uh, episode. Uh, I have to admit, I'm prompting you a bit there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What I was actually writing about on Friday in the newsletter was, um, so there's a web browser which has been around on Mac for a little while now, I think maybe like a year or just over, something like that, uh, called Arc. And um, currently, so it's a Chromium-based browser, so it uses the Chromium rendering engine. with a Mac uh, user interface on top of it. And up until, well, still up until now, it is Mac uh, only uh, in terms of where you can run it. Uh, but they are currently doing a um, Windows version and using Swift to build that Windows version, which is, um, I think I described it as ambitious. Yeah. Because I think it it is certainly quite ambitious. Um, and so, and actually that's, Salim is working for um, yeah. that company. It's called the Browser Company, uh, and he works there at the moment, and presumably he's leading that uh, initiative. Yeah, And I actually had a little chat. I actually kind of got it wrong in the newsletter. I've, I've posted an update to it this morning just to uh, a correction. I kind of concluded that they were maybe not working on some kind of cross-platform UI um, framework, but actually... Um, their CTO uh, reached out to me over the weekend and he said, that's not quite right. What we're doing is we're doing a different UI layer for Mac and Windows, but both written in Swift. So we're not trying to make a cross-platform UI. We're trying to make a platform-specific UI, but all using Swift, Mm. Um, which of course, if you want to get perfect platform native feel on both platforms, that's what you have to do. Yeah. And so I, I think the fact that that project is in progress um, is one kind of, that's one mark in the sand for, for Windows.
0: Yeah. So I've come across a requirement for Wasm in one context that might be quite interesting, and that is cloud deployment. And that's a, the project I where this popped up was Swift Cloud. There was an early testing I did before we um, actually started our Doxy C um, uploader project that is using Swift Lam- Lambda. I came across Swift Cloud and that's by Andrew Barber. And that is actually, that is Swift. So you actually write a Swift package that deploys to that cloud very, very nicely. The, the process is super smooth, much smoother than it is to get something deployed on AWS Lambda. Um, and there the requirement is that the package is actually um, supports a Wasm or runs on on Wasm because it, it gets actually um, compiled into a Wasm, um, I guess, binary. I'm not even sure what the artifact is that comes out of it. Um, and that is then deployed into that cloud. So in that context, I can see demand for Wasm actually as a um, compatibility test that, that would be quite useful and interesting. I suppose in terms of effort, I could imagine that Wasm, Wasm is probably quite a bit easier to get tested for because we would effectively be using I guess the Mac or or Linux because I think all you need is a Swift compiler version and that needs I think to be a certain compiler version um that needs to be ready for WASM. It's not upstreamed everything. Um but I think at least on the platform side um that would be different from, from Windows and, and less complex, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of exciting to have two more platforms that, that we could potentially add to our compatibility testing. That in itself is remarkable.
0: Yes, and beginning of June, there might be yet another one. Who knows?
1: <laughs> so I'm going to combine my first package uh, recommendation this week with a quiz. Um, it was going to be a package recommendation because it popped up in the uh, RSS feed of of new major versions uh this week um but it is a package that I also then then or it's a tool that I also then ran on our code base and um uh, and we can do a little quiz on the results of it oh it, is that um Paul Hudson's tool it is Paul Hudson's tool oh I I I haven't actually run it so I'm not I'm unspoiled I'm I'm curious what the results <laughs> are <laughs> that's good so the tool is called sitrap yeah. uh, and it is a um uh, a tool that will take a look at your Swift code base and give you statistics on it um so I ran the tool uh today um because it just it did the the version three um release uh gained support for Swift five point eight so it's right up to date with uh, with the current Swift version yeah And I ran the tool today uh, and discovered various different stats on our code base. So let's start with a question about purely lines of code. How many lines of Swift code do you think we have in the Swift package index?
0: Ooh, I ran a tool a few months back. And so I think I might have a sense of
1: this and I think it was 30K. Okay. Um, You are underestimating if in total lines of code, which I presume includes comments and uh, all the rest of it, we have 46,000. Okay. And um, in in source code, we have 40,000. So uh, there are 6,000 wasted lines of code in our code base. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe more, depending on how you look at it. (laughs) (laughs) But not far off, I guess, the correct ballpark.
0: Um, Well, I ran this three months ago, and we obviously wrote 10... Fourteen thousand lines since then, so clearly, I'm, I'm right. yes, that's definitely what we did.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, how about structs, classes, and enums? Of those three different types, um, which of those do we have most of between just structs, classes, and enums? Oh, I think the order is structs, enum, classes. Interesting, not quite correct, but you were correct with structs. So we have the most number of structs. Uh, but then we have classes. No, behind that, yep. <laughs> Uh And enums trailing behind, yeah. Uh, so we have one hundred and forty nine um, tests. Uh, sorry, one hundred and forty nine structs. One hundred and eleven classes. Oh, and fifty eight. All the enums. vapor
0: models are classes. Yes, because I was thinking only only the views where we actually have have classes, but the all the vapor models are actually classes. Yeah. How many protocols do you think we have? Not a whole lot, I think. Can you give me the, how many
1: classes did we have in the end, or enums? We had uh, 111 classes in total. Oh wow, that many? Well, I don't know, like 40? Uh, we have eight protocols, which is oh, way wow. less than I would have thought. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're obviously not particularly keen on the old protocols. <laughs> um, and finally, one last question on types. Um, how many extensions do we have? Oh, we have loads of extensions. We have lots of extensions. You're correct. So I can give you a I can give you a clue on this. We have more extensions than all of the other types put together.
0: <laughs> well, that's not, so. I was going to ask how is that actually counted? Because what I often do is I I open an extension and then you know grouping a few things together, and then I open in the same file a same another extension on the same type, grouping yet another set of things together so is that two extensions
1: i don't know how it works but i would assume i would assume given that this number is quite high i would assume that it is every time you make an extension it counts that i'm gonna say 200. we have 354 (laughs) extensions okay final well not not actually final question but um you'll see what i mean what's our longest file no It's the same file, both in just pure number of lines in the file and actual longest amount of source lines in a type. I think it's going to be a test. And I'm going to say it's analysis tests. Not quite. I think you'll actually be pleased to hear what the the file is. It is a test. and given that the uh, package index is a search engine, it is actually our search tests that is the... Uh, oh, <laughs> of
0: course, because all the all the SQL is expanded and tested. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, It's good that it's a test <laughs> because those are And massive. it comes in
1: at almost 1,300 lines of code, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> um. So actually, at that point, what I did was I deleted our tests directory and ran it again. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> because I... I thought well what's what's the largest class um, or, or' that I think it's not actually a class but what's the largest type um, without the tests so what's your guess on that like type of file uh, it's actually the both they're both the same both the file and the type are the largest.
0: I'd say again analysis although that's not a type that's just a
1: file so that can't actually be um, search. You were actually you were, you should have gone with your gut feeling it was um the, the the type is analyze and it's in analyze.swift so analyze just to give a bit of background is the process that um looks at all of the metadata from uh a local checkout of the git repository for a package so we check out the git repository and then we run this analysis process on it which looks at commit history it analyzes the package.swift it ingests um, all the, the metadata out of that package.swift file and and a whole load of Git metadata as well. But actually, given that it is such a um, a, a, a large process, um, the number of source lines is not that bad. It's 623 lines, which I think, given that's our very largest file, I think that's kind of okay, actually.
0: Yeah, I, I just remember I had started moving. I think that has now a top-level enum that sort of has a namespace analyze. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to do that, because then it's a bit nicer to break it up into into segments and, and name them properly because they're named by the type.
1: I did have one final question. Um, so once I ran the tool again without the tests folder, I was able to see how much of our code is in code and how much of our code is in tests. Um, and I won't ask you for numbers here, but as a percentage, how much is code and how much is tests? I think the tests are more lines of code,
0: maybe fifty percent more? No, thirty percent more.
1: Actually remarkably close. Uh we have more code than we do tests. Um, but only just. We have we're fifty five percent code, forty five percent tests. Oh wow. I thought that was more the other way around. Interesting. Which again, I think is is actually fine i think that's a that's a, a healthy uh, a healthy balance of code uh, to tests within a project i th- i think in terms of time spent i'm i spent with that's
0: probably why i'm overestimating it so much because i only stare at the tests <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yes, that's so that's both my first package recommendation for this week, and also nice. uh, a little quiz for uh, for you, Fen, and for everyone to uh, hopefully get a bit of insight into what uh, our project looks like. Um, and I would recommend it's very easy to install. It's actually you can install it trivially with um, Homebrew. Uh, you can just have Brew install, and then there's a there's a uh, a path you can uh, install, and it installed in five minutes. And then running it is just as simple as typing "sitrep" in your source code directory. Um, The only other thing that I'd mention here is um, I had to clean up our source directory a little bit before I ran it. Um, So I had to remove the .dot build directory because it was looking and finding source Swift files inside there for all of our dependencies as well. Uh, So I just I just completely removed that folder. Uh, and then ran it on just our source code files. So just be aware that it may give you if you if you use Swift uh, build from the command line, you may have a huge .build directory which it's looking at as well.
0: Really nice. That was a nice quiz. Do you want to do your first yeah, package? Let's let's do the the other packages. So the first one I wanted to talk about is called uh, Gonzales by Andreas Wendleder, Gonzolo, also on um, on GitHub. <laughs> this is this is an interesting package because it's a package you're almost certainly not going to use. <laughs> um I noticed this this week because there was a new release but then I actually went back to look into it in more detail and found out that it was introduced in January 21 in a blog post and on the Swift forums. Um and this is a package that is a, the TLDR is render disney's Moana scene in less than 10,000 lines of Swift code um, and the the thing about the package is it, it claims to be one of the only renderers of that scene which is an elaborate 3D um, rendering um, uh, scene from a Disney film um, one of the only packages or uh, things that,
1: that does that that isn't written in C++ or C okay I'm going to need a bit of context here so obviously i'm familiar with the film moana um but what does it mean by render like does it have the models and does it have yes that kind of stuff
0: yes so we'll add a link to the show notes you can actually download the assets for the moana island scene um from disneyanimation.com wow and the ba- this is really interesting so the base download is 45 gigabytes 93 gigabytes unpacked that's just the base scene and there's 24 gigabytes of compressed animation data 15 gigabytes of usd uh usd version of our data along um, that might be i'm not sure what that is exactly but we're talking about uh usd is that's a 3d format yeah yeah that's model data because but i'm not sure if that's just part of the base uh, if that's in addition or if that's actually required but you know you're certainly looking at tens of gigabytes of input data to render this scene so this is stuff that gets ingested by this package or other packages that render that scene that's the underlying data that it uses to then generate a scene so what this this person what andreas has done has written a swift package And he says, I wrote it in VI and command line Swift on Ubuntu, Linux and Xcode on macOS. So I mean that first part, I wrote it in VI and command line Swift. I thought, wow, okay. (laughs) But apparently he's also used Xcode and I think he's used that mainly to do performance testing because of instruments. Uh, He mentions that. I mean, that, that blog post from January 21 is definitely worth reading. And there's a lot of interesting details about the project itself um, how it's been developed but what he did in January 21 is first run this and he created a a single image he rendered a single scene like one output scene like 2k by 800 pixels in 64 bit something I think that was the bit depth Um, and he did this on a eight vCPU 40 gigabyte memory cloud instance on on Google Cloud. And it took 24 hours. So that's a single image. That's like a frame. He rendered a single frame in 24 hours. And the release he published last week, which he re-rendered that scene. Now, it's not a one-to-one comparison. The, The image is slightly smaller, ever so slightly. I think it's maybe like... 10% 10% in each, each dimension, uh, so 20, roughly 20% fewer pixels overall, and a slightly faster machine. So this one in the cloud instance was actually, I think, a physical machine, but he brought it down to 78 minutes. So that's quite remarkable in itself. That's incredible. But I thought this whole project is really interesting, uh, and the blog post certainly is. So um, you probably won't use it, but certainly you'll find um, the blog post interesting, I believe if you're interested in Swift and that kind of Swift, which is, you know, sort of low levelly, y um, and, you know, just, just very interesting cross-platform. It has lots of things that I find super interesting about, about Swift in general.
1: I had no idea that those assets were uh, public and available.
0: Yep, there you go. That's Gonzales by Andreas Wendleder.
1: Fantastic. Um, so my next um, package is one called One Finger Rotation um which i i spotted it because it's kind of an interesting uh title i spotted it in the rss um uh, list of package updates and i opened up the uh, package page for it and instantly at the very top of the readme file is the most beautiful animation and um explanation of well not, it's not even an explanation because it's not what it does at all eh. but it's a beautiful eye-catching animation uh and it made me want to learn more about this so the control in itself is a gesture so you can add a one finger rotation gesture to any view so if you imagine if you were designing uh, a ui that had a, uh, a rotary dial on it this would be a gesture so that you could move your finger across the surface in a kind of a circular motion and have the dial respond uh, to your uh, to your touch. Um but the animation on the top of this uh package page is wonderful. So it takes a very simple line drawing of a of a rotary dial and then in 3D spins it around to show this kind of incredible machine, like Rube Goldberg type machine <laughs> underneath which is creating this one, and of course that is, it's complete fiction, but it's a beautiful example of really catching... I mean, it caught my eye for, for sure, made me um, uh, look more carefully at the package, and actually this package is great. So there is... You might think that, that this would be a very simple package, but there are so many things that you can do with this. And um, you could have inertia on your uh, rotation gesture. So you can, you can either just have it track your finger, uh, or if you kind of let go of your finger, you can have the dial carry on uh, spinning. Um, and you can rotate to specific values with or without inertia. You can have auto rotation. Um, so, there's an enormous amount of work that's gone into this um, this one-finger uh, gesture uh, and I thought it was worth highlighting um, and, and it's the kind of thing I actually have used in real-world projects before. I think it depends on the project specifically, but um, a, a rotary dial is certainly a valid UI control in a touch uh, environment.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a virtual iPod click wheel, isn't it?
1: Pretty much, yep. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I actually had this on my extended list as well, I I saw that and I was... So that's, uh, yeah, that's uh, One Finger Rotation by Matteo Fontana. Nice. Right, my second package this week
0: is Swift Soup by Nabil Chatby. And this is a package that we're actually using in the Swift Package Index. Um, And what it does... We do, yeah. It is a nice package to parse HTML. Which we have some need for, I think, in the context of adding
1: the navigation bar to our Doxy pages. You are correct. Yeah, that's the only—that's I think the only place we actually use it in production. Um, so yes, we we take the generated docsy documentation page, and we want to add some HTML to it above and below as headers and footers on that documentation um site and so we pass the entire HTML document so that we can insert um uh, various tags we insert stuff into the the head tag uh which is the non-visible um part of the page and then we insert tags above and below all of the Doxy rendering uh environment
0: yeah yeah and you you touched on a key point there we're passing the whole page and and i think that's that's maybe something Interesting to briefly talk about because the first thing you hear when someone um, wants to extract data out of HTML is you know you, you can imagine the Stack Overflow question: What kind of regex do I need to write to get this out of the <laughs> out of the HTML? And the first response is don't. <laughs> you know so this package is for the time when you're reaching for regex, but you know you shouldn't. And I was I was trying. I mean we have this immediate response right: don't do it. Why is that actually? Um, and I, I looked into this briefly. I had some vague recollection of why that is, and I, the, the things that come up. You know, HTML is a context-free language, and I think it's. I don't even remember what the details are. This I think is mainly about the nesting. You know, you can have deeply nested structures that you eventually can't handle with regex uh, because you know the, you you can't write the regex
1: for this recursive thing. I think the other the other part of it is just that. HTML is so um what's the best word for this But so accepting of almost any input it will it will do its best with whatever it gets um and so with a text format like that where you you might have a closing tag or actually you might not oh, right or sometimes yeah. you yeah. will sometimes you'll have white space sometimes you won't it's like it's a very rough environment to start past uh, to start uh doing like searches through with a what regex or something like that
0: yeah and you know pages might still render okay even though they they have technically
1: incorrect html i think you know that absolutely yeah i mean the 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 browsers have over 20 years um got got all sorts of stuff in it that they'll render almost whatever they can they'll render something no matter what the input and that's a very challenging thing for anyone else to uh reproduce
0: anyway i was i was briefly on this you know, on this in the situation where I had way too many browser tabs open, <laughs> and I ended up on the pumping lemma for regular languages, and I thought at that point, wait, you got you got to stop. You're so deep in the weeds, <laughs> and you're reading about stuff you don't even understand. But I I thought I thought thought that was really interesting and funny how you 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 know you can have these stepping stones from things you almost understand anything you're just one click away i think oh I'll, I'll, yeah after i'm reading this page I'll, I'll certainly know what this is about and you just what we ended up with is just three more tabs <laughs> <laughs> so there you go swift soup by nabil shatby
1: yeah and we can we can thoroughly recommend that because we've been using it now for um a good amount of time well over a year uh and it, it has been flawless it's uh it's a great package yeah So my final package this week is um, a package called Discord Kit, uh, and the organization is um, Swiftcord, which is not something that I had actually come across before. I actually have. There is a
0: a Discord client by that name, and Discord Kit, I think. Then obviously, is the underlying package that drives the API access for it. Um, I'm not sure what state it's in. I've been checking it out for uh, over over months now. Every once in a while, I I do download the latest release, but obviously with Discord and we use it so much, um, you need a lot of, you know, it needs to be quite mish- mature before you actually start using it in earnest, but it is actually a, a client that connects to Discord
1: and displays channels and, and all sorts of things. Interesting. So I hadn't come across that uh, third-party client, um, but the reason I was interested in this package was you can create Discord bots yeah. with this package so you could, the, the example in the readme file is a just a simple ping uh, bot where you can you can send a message to the bot and it will it will reply if you know if you say ping it will say pong um but that's a proof of concept for a bot um basic bot kind of sh- scaffolding um and the whole thing is done in like five or six lines of swift code and the reason i was interested in this is so, we use Discord quite extensively in the Swift Package Index project. We have a Discord server where we uh, chat with contributors and just have general chat about Swift Package Index, that kind of thing. Um, but we also recently moved all of our reporting um, across. We used to use a combination of a, a tool called Rollbar, which is a web based tool, and we had a Telegram uh, channel where, where it would report um, exceptions and, you know, and logging events to that telegram channel and we've recently uh moved all of that into our discord server and so we have two channels one for our staging environment one for our production environment where it's just constantly saying well it deployed this version or it you know this exception happened or you know there's a whole load of of um information in there uh and i i find that sometimes i would like not for every message but i would like um, some messages to be more prominently notified to me than others uh, and so i was wondering whether i might have a little play with seeing what we can do with this bot to see if we can uh, do some kind of fine grain notifications uh, there based on the actual information. i haven't done any of this work yet but it just it did um it did stand out to me as something i might do that's interesting yeah i'm i'm really curious about that um while you're at it
0: write something that kicks the, the one thing that, that seems to be happening every couple of days where you need to manually <laughs> intervene. If that could be automated with a Discord bot, that would be amazing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think it's it's the kind of thing that, um, again, this probably is not going to be a package that many people use. Um, but certainly uh, being able to write a Discord bot in Swift is, uh, is a nice uh, little shortcut. Great. I I think that wraps it up for this week, doesn't it? Yeah, another another set of package recommendations, another quiz, and we will be back in two weeks uh, with yet more Swish package news. Exactly, and that's going to be just before WWDC. That is going to be just before it, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Exciting times. All right, see you in two weeks. Bye-bye. See you then. Bye-bye.